everybody. I've been given a lot of thought this week as to what we were going to talk about. And, you know, as everyone knows out there, the market is very tumultuous. And I think it's really important. People are really concerned right now with inflation, with interest rates, with the stock market. And I just want to shed some light around that, give you some opinions, some fact, and just a discussion evolved or revolved around that marketplace and what's going on. So a couple of things. I think everyone at this point knows that the Federal Reserve met on May 3rd and May 4th. And they really evaluated what quarter one looked like. So quarter one being January, February, March of 2022. A couple of bullet points from it. So they had mentioned that the overall economic activity edged down slightly in the first quarter of 2022. But on a positive note, jobs increased, unemployment decreased. And as everyone's heard and felt in the marketplace, inflation is still over 8%. So the Fed talked a little bit as well about the war in Ukraine and what's going on. And I think we all know that's really created a human and economic hardship globally. When you look at from a gas price standpoint, the reality is gas prices are a global commodity, right? Oil is a global commodity. So when you look at the United States that produces the most amount of oil in the world, we really make enough oil or produce enough oil to be able to be self-sustainable. But it doesn't work that way. We just can't use all of our own oil. Everything's interconnected in the global environment. And there being different bans on Russia and some of the imports coming in from Russia really impacted the supply and impacted the global chain. And we're feeling that at the pumps right now. And that's something we're probably going to continue to experience for quite some time. As far as the entire U.S. economy, the Fed really didn't know where things were going to go moving forward due to the conflict overseas. They do know that there will be some increased pressure on inflation. We're going to continue to see that. There's still supply chain disruptions, specifically right now in China. China has a lot of COVID restrictions going on that's going to continue to increase supply chain disruptions and increase pressure on inflation. So although they're making a lot of moves to try to stable out that inflation rate that's going on right now, the Fed we're still going to continue to see some pain due to some other factors that we can't control, like the war and COVID. So some of the goals that the Fed had mentioned, they want to achieve a 2% inflation rate, which is really a significant reduction from where we're at right now. They also want to keep unemployment low in the labor market strong. And they updated the target for the federal funds rate to be 1%. So they increased interest rates, the federal funds overnight rate, by half a percent at the last meeting. Now, some of the foreshadowing that they gave is the total increase to the federal overnight rate or the Fed fund rate could be as much as 3% this year, which would be the highest increase since the 1980s. Well, how's that impact everybody? So it impacts the prime rate of interest, which is really the interest rate that impacts home equity lines and personal loans and credit cards. The prime rate has jumped up to 4%. Now, if The Fed continues to increase interest rates, you're going to see that prime rate inch to five, inch to 6% over the course of time. The other thing that I would say, and something that was really new for what they were talking about, is the Fed's plan to reduce holdings of treasury debt, agency debt, and mortgage-backed securities debt starting on June 1st. Well, why? So I'm going to get into a little bit of the why they're doing that and really what it all means is try to tie everything together for you. So since COVID hit and the government had to get heavily involved in stabilizing the economy, they have doubled their balance sheet. And we're talking trillions of dollars 
of balance sheet has changed over the course of the past couple of years. And during COVID, what they started to do is purchase bonds, treasuries, and mortgage-backed securities in order to increase the supply of money, which kept interest rates down to historic lows. They call that process quantitative easing, which is essentially they're getting involved to stabilize pricing and, and increase the affordability in the accessibility to money. So what they said after this last meeting, well, let me back up for a second. Last Fed meeting, they talked about how they were going to stop purchasing mortgage-backed securities and treasuries. And that had an impact to the market. And we saw interest rates come up a little bit. Just the announcement that they were going to no longer be involved in that process. This meeting, they said they're going to start to sell these investments that they had taken on in treasury securities, mortgage-backed securities. So their plan starting June 1st, is they're going to sell $30 billion per month in treasury securities for three months. So June, July, and August. After those three months, they're planning to sell $60 billion in those security instruments. They're also going to sell agency and mortgage-backed securities debt. And I'll get into this in a moment. And they're going to sell $17.5 billion starting June 1st for three months. And then they're going to increase that number to $35 billion. That whole process is the opposite of quantitative easing. It's called quantitative tightening, and that decreases the supply of money, which increases interest rates. Well, why would they do that? Well, they're doing that because that's a hedge against inflation. When you restrict the supply of money, that should get inflation under control, and one of their goals, or their, their, one of their biggest goals, is to get that inflation rate down to 2%. So I want to talk a few minutes. This is a mortgage-oriented, professional mortgage, real estate-oriented show. I want to talk a little bit about the mortgage-backed securities market. So mortgage-backed securities market is a secondary market for mortgages to really create liquidity in the market versus banks just lending their money out and they eventually run out of money, right? So there's a secondary market to keep money flowing through the system. Now, with mortgage-backed securities, when the price of securities increases, the interest rates decrease. And that's what we've been see that's what we saw happening as the Federal Reserve went through their quantitative easing. Now, to the flip side of that, when the price of a mortgage-backed security drops, rates increase. Now, I'm not an economist, but just it stands to reason to me, if the government floods the market with mortgage-backed securities, that increases the supply with limited demand or the same demand that would decrease the value or the price of a mortgage-backed securities, therefore increasing the interest rate. And I'll give you a practical example. You ever walk into a store and they have a huge sale on something? Well, the chances are they have a huge sale on something because they have an oversupply of it, right? They get too much of it. They can't sell it, so they cut the price on it. This is the same basic principle in play. When you have a ton of, a ton of product hitting the market, you have to decrease the value. It's not worth as much, right? not many people want it. And for mortgage-backed securities, when that value decreases or the price decreases, that increases the interest rates. So I would plan over the course of this year to start to see a consistent increase to the interest rate market. But let's talk about impacts of interest rates and what we've seen over the course of the past year. So this rate impact, the biggest thing that it's impact for people is it impacts affordability. And I'm going to quantify that. So this time last year, a $400,000 loan amount. So let me back up. Say you're buying a house for $500,000, putting down 
20% is 100,000, gives you a $400,000 loan amount. This time last year, the rates, let's call it 3%, gives you a principal and interest payment of $1,686 a month. Today, interest rates are closer to 5.5%. And depending on when you listen to this podcast, if you listen to this podcast next year, well, then that's not an accurate fact. But where it sits today, it's about 5.5%. So on that same $400,000 loan, the mortgage payment's $2,271 a month, which is a difference of $585 a month. So it's significant, right? I bought a house last year for $500,000. This year I buy it for $500,000, 20% down. My mortgage payment's $585 higher. And that impacts your purchasing power by about $100,000, meaning $100,000 worth of a loan is about a $585 a month mortgage. So it's a big deal. Now, one of the things that we should see happen as the interest rates continue to climb is interest rates should start to stabilize the real estate value. And that's really, we're starting to see that trend already, evident by some recent price drops in the market, less people at open houses, there's less offers, more offers closer to asking price, but that's an overall trend. Now, just to be clear on this, that does not signal a crash. It just means that things are going to stabilize. And over the course of time, you're not going to see people paying $20,000, $100,000 over the asking price. Everything will stabilize. Now, to reinforce the fact, in my opinion, that there's not going to be a crash, when you look at the 15-year trend of real estate and its appreciation, so say, call it 2008 through today, or 2007 through today. There's only been about a 3 to 4% increase in value over that time frame per year. So we've just happened to receive all of this increase in a two-year time frame. But when you look at things from a long-term perspective, real estate is really just on track for where it should have been. You know, a lot of people after the crash in 2008, 9, and 10, it took them until COVID hitting for them to even get their values back from where they had crashed at uh, a decade earlier. So point being, I don't think we're going to see a crash in the marketplace, but you are going to see some stability. And kind of zooming off a little bit more on that, you know, I hear all the time people are going to wait until the market crashes. I'm of the opinion that there's not going to be a real estate market crash because the factors that are in play today are completely different than the factors that were in play in 2006, seven, and eight. And the biggest difference just being supply and demand of homes. If you go back to, uh, let's call it the end of 2008 when the market started to crash, one of the challenges, there was, there was an oversupply of real estate and all the buyers went away. So when people stop buying homes and you have this huge supply of inventory, prices start to crash. Now, you compound that with some unique things in the marketplace with creative financing in the mortgage space, you know, different things banks were doing with derivatives. It created a, an unusual situation, and that's what created a crash in the marketplace. And we don't see that right now. So what's going on right now is, yeah, values have went up, and they're going to start to stabilize, but there's none of these other factors in place that really should create a crash. There's still huge demand for properties. And there's actually limited inventory. And that's why even as interest rates go up, there's still that high demand for it. There's a high pent-up demand for it. Now, I also want to talk a little bit about the access to money that I had mentioned earlier. So here's the trend I'm starting to see in the marketplace. A lot of the big banks are moving away from home equity lines and personal loans due to the market volatility. It's so volatile out there, banks are starting to kind of restrict some of the lending that they have. 
Uh, also, what you're seeing in the marketplace is mortgage companies are cutting back on their staff significantly. And a big reason for that is there's a 50% reduction in refinance business. And a lot of the bigger lenders out in the marketplace showed quarterly losses from January to March of this year. We're seeing an increased layoff in the mortgage industry, increased pricing, decreased service as a result of earnings being way down, right? You have to start letting people go. Service levels start to drop a little bit. Now, the other thing that I think that we may see, if the past is indicative of the future, if we start to see some of the conforming big agencies changing their guidelines, specifically Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they start to restrict their guidelines a little bit. You're going to see things open up for FHA lending, which is exactly what we saw in 2009-10, where there was a move away from conventional lending and then a, a push towards FHA lending. So we may start to see that. We'll keep an eye on that over the course of the next 12 months. The other thing that we're going to slowly start to see with these cutbacks in mortgage lenders is a small shift from lenders and brokers back to depository banks as they're just more diversified. So let me explain what that means. So if you're a mortgage lender, and you can be a huge mortgage lender, you sell essentially one product, and it's mortgage-related. Now, that could be retail. It could be wholesale. It could be a ton of different products under the mortgage umbrella, but that's your bread and butter. And there's no real diversity uh, for that. So when you see markets start to change significantly, well, hey, that's your only product and you're jockeying to make everything work. And that results in the layoffs and the different things I had mentioned. When you get over to true depository banks, it changes. A depository bank has multiple streams of income. So they're not completely reliable or on the one mortgage product. I remember when the crash hit last time, and again, there's no crash that I'm I'm planning on coming. I'm just using it as a comparison. We watched an industry that was really dominated by brokers and lenders shift within a couple of years to it really was dominated by the banking industry. And again, if the past is indicative of the future, you may start to see a little bit of that over the course of the next couple of years, but we'll see where it goes. And so, all right, we know we're going to have some changes in the marketplace that we've already seen. So then the question is, well, who's purchasing homes? First time home buyers that were edged out of the market based on how they qualified, right? Traditionally, a first-time home buyer is going to have a lower down payment than someone who's a repeat or a step-up buyer. So those first-time home buyers that were 34% of the market prior to COVID dropped significantly from a percentage standpoint last year. You know, I've read a bunch of different articles on it. One of them indicated it was about 20% last year. That's a big difference. And the First-time homebuyer average age is 33. They're not going away. They just need an opportunity to get back into the market. And I think we're going to start to, to see that. Specifically, millennial marketplace. So millennial marketplace, biggest demographic of all time. It's 72 million people. And a lot of them need to get into homes. And they're not building enough housing to create housing for all of these folks. So you're going to continue to see a demand from that demographic. The other thing to keep an eye on, it's sneaking up on us already, is Gen Z. So the oldest Gen Z right now is 25. So you're going to, and there's 68 million people, right? It's a total of 140 million people over the course of the next 10 to 15 years that are really going to be in that housing market. And with rent skyrocketing, Home ownership is just going to consistently, in my opinion, be a better value. So as a professional that's out, that's out there listening to this podcast today, real estate or mortgage loan officer, how do you stay in front of it? 
So a couple of things that I would mention, the average age of a real estate agent or a loan officer, it's over 50. I'm looking at myself, I'm over 50. You know, how are we marketing to them? You know, are you marketing to the younger generation, if you are in that, that 50-ish demographic, in the fashion that they want to be marketed to and in a fashion where they're going to be comfortable with you? You know, are you using the correct social media platforms? Are you up to date on your websites, right? Because the average website out there for real estate is over five years old. And we all know how fast things change in the marketplace. Five years old is a dinosaur. You know, at the end of the day on it, you really, we all need to change our paradigm to make sure that we're working in a fashion where the home buyers that are up and coming are comfortable with us. You know, at the end of the day, real estate agents, mortgage people, in my opinion, they're not going away. You need these high trust relationships for people's biggest investment. But what is going to change is who's getting a piece of the proverbial pie. And that really comes down to individuals and what your marketing plan is and really what your humanitarian plan is, right? For to having people be comfortable with you. Uh, I would highly recommend for people listening to this, to subscribe to our podcast because these are the type of things that we've spoken about in the past in more detail and that we're going to speak about in the future. So just a couple of quick takeaways. You know, it's critical, again, that we're marketing to people in a fashion that they want to be marketed to. Uh, we have to go after this largest segment in the marketplace between millennial and Gen Z, 140 million people. And again, doing it in a fashion that they're comfortable with, I think, as everyone knows, going to be well-researched and well-prepared. Uh, from a real estate standpoint, 89% of people are still going to work with a real estate agent statistically. You know, are you working the social media? Are you giving the information that people need? And are you laser-focused agenda marketing plan? And I'd probably leave it with the market is evolving. And the question is, are you? So with that being said, those are some uh, broad strokes about the Federal Reserve meeting, you know, who's going to be buying homes, what's coming down the pike, and just some, again, some broad strokes about how you're going to market to them. I'm going to touch just a little bit on interest rates before we wrap this up, and I'm going to give everybody a, a history lesson on that. In 1975, interest rates were 9%. By 1983, they had skyrocketed to 18%. 1993, 8.5%. 2003, 5.75%. Notice you haven't heard of three yet. By 2013, as the government got involved in some more quantitative easing after the crash, you know, they had a different agenda, but they still were able to force rates down. They dropped to three and a quarter. January of 2021, that's when we hit the uh, all-time lows. We're at about two and a half, 2.625. And now as it sits today, we're back up to about five, five and a half percent. Historically, still low. But it's something that we have to be prepared for when we're, when we're talking to people and being able to show the pros and the cons associated with, hey, here's your rate. Here's how much you're paying for the house. Here's what you need to be prepared for as a consumer. Because at the end of the day, I know everyone that's listening to this is consumer focused. So if anyone has any questions for me, you can certainly reach out to me via email, greg, G-R-E-G, at yourmortgageprocess.com. Or you can reach out to me via phone, area code 385 519 home. So that's 385-519-H O M E. I appreciate everybody listening and I hope everyone has a great day. Thanks guys. Bye.
Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Your Mortgage Process, hosted by Greg Wareham, produced by Greg Wareham and Nick Pavise at The Social Rift, and executively produced by The Social Rift. Thank you again for tuning in, and we look forward to catching up with you next week.